0: Tickets to your favorite band's next concert. The weather for the next 24 hours. Who played Willow Rosenberg in Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Facebook. These are all things you may have searched for in the last 20 minutes. If you did, there is a good chance that you found the correct answer. It is probable that you conducted the search on Google. In this episode of Tech with Tommy, we explore what made Google such a fantastic search engine compared to the rest, and how it came to dominate so much that to Google is a verb, and you probably have never heard of AltaVista. We will also go in a bit into the history of the early web and all the changes around the early 90s that made something like Google not just really nice, but also necessary. As always, I'm your host, Tommy. In the 90s, something was growing. And that something was, of course, the Internet. By 1991, the Internet was so obscure that it was ignored by essentially everyone. One of the few who did something about it was Swiss physicist Tim Berners-Lee. Who wrote the first HTML web server, and with that, the World Wide Web was born. By nineteen ninety nine, that's eight years later, you could still ignore the Internet and the Web. But everybody knew doing so was dangerous, and that sooner or later it would run over you. If you ignored it, you were on borrowed time. Imagine you're in. A kid entering school in 1991. With all the usual anxieties of a child going from the safe world you've grown used to and taking big steps to, towards becoming an adult, there's a unique challenge that your parents never had to face and nobody after you had to experience. You have probably never seen a computer up close unless your parent or older sibling was a nerd. And had one of the relatively few home computers in the 80s. Even if you used one regularly, not only would the computer not have an internet connection, the concept of what made a computer a computer changed almost entirely in the 90s. The most famous 80s computer, the Commodore 64, looked much more like a fancy desktop calculator Than the IBM computer on the typical office desk in 1991. To the best of my knowledge, the Commodore NEVER had a hard drive and you had to buy the costly floppy drive separately. And let's just completely ignore a color screen. Compare that to a computer purchased in 1991, which likely had one or two floppy drives and an installed hard drive. By the time, then, you went to third grade, computers would be the cool thing, and the internet something you wanted access to. But they were still like that beanie baby your mom wouldn't let you play with, or your tamagotchi. A toy. A fancy and damn cool toy, and you definitely wanted one, but a toy. Your teacher might still require you to hand in your essays by hand, which means that you would have to write a draft and then rewrite the entire thing again in as neat handwriting as you could. Effectively, then, you would have to do a lot of your schoolwork twice. You know, but at least you could still say the dog ate it. After all, as your teacher would remind you, you wouldn't always have access to a computer. It was also important that you learn to write in cursive, because that would be expected of you when you entered the workforce. And no, I'm not bitter at all. The adults didn't know any better. They were doing their best and were just trying to help us become some semblance of reasonable adults. That was the challenge. Nobody knew what was going on. And as kids, we had to learn to navigate that world alone. Not too surprisingly, I was the tech guy in the family, and so in many cases, it was up to me to help my parents. Okay, I am a bit bitter about the cursor. By the time you graduated, you will get thrown out in a world where you were expected to use a computer, despite nobody telling you or teaching you how, even though... You had just come out of school. In those eight years, the amount of information available on the internet had exploded, as had how easy it is to contact people, as far more people than ever were online. It's hard to imagine just how significant that change was. So it's worth bringing in some numbers and some important events that we now take for granted. In 1995, about 10% of North America was on the internet. By 2000, it was about 50%. To compare that with another technology most of us take granted, in 1989, about 10% of the United States had access to a flush toilet. By 1920, 30 years later, this had risen to 20% it would take another decade to reach 50%. That is, the percentage connected to the internet grew the same in 5 years as flush toilets did in 40. The only thing that grew nearly as fast was the original instant communication technology, radio. In 1925, 10% 10% of US households had a radio. Five years later, in 1930, it was 45%. It is not just that communication technology takes off fast. TV took a lot longer to break through, partially because of a little incident called World War II. Hotmail launched in 1996 as the first webmail where you could access your email from any computer in the world. By 1998, America Online, also known as AOL, had purchased ICQ, ICQ, which would go on to become one of the world's leading real-time chat platforms. Think about that for a second. In 1996, it was revolutionary that you could access your email anywhere, that you didn't have to be at home to do it. Two years later, and now you can write to people directly, in real time. Economists generally don't agree on much, but they will agree that when the supply of something goes up, its price goes down. Which means more demand for complementary goods. I don't know why economists insist on calling things goods, rather than, you know, things, but they do. Okay, what am I bringing economists into this for? Basically, in the 90s, the supply of information went up drastically. If you wanted to know something about elephants, to pick one example, you used to have to either go to the library, buy a book on the subject, or use your parents encyclopedia in 2001 you could just read a web page about it the information supply had gone up so much that the problem people now had was getting too much information not getting enough information what then are complementary goods best understood as an example your car and gasoline are both a complementary good the gasoline makes your car far more useful if the average price of cars fall more cars will be sold but that means more gasoline will be purchased even if the price of gasoline goes up on the other hand if gas gets too expensive fewer cars will be sold even if the cost of a car actually goes down. What is the complementary good for information? Indexing and organization. If you are a monk in a monastery with 10 books, you can organize them however you want, because it takes very little time to find the one you need. Your need for information and organization barely exists. On the other hand, you are very careful with the books because they cost a lot to replace. If you want the Library of Congress, you need the decimal system, or you will literally never be able to find the book you're looking for. And if a book happens to be damaged, that's not a big deal. You can almost expect that a certain number of books are damaged each year. In any case. Let's get back to the question that was relevant in nineteen ninety four. How do you organize the internet? Well, with Jerry and David Sky to the World Wide Web, of course. It sounds like the stuff you impulse by standing in line at a gas station or maybe a weird James Franco movie. What is it actually? It's the first name of what would later become Yahoo. Jerry and David are Jerry Yang and David Filo, two graduate students from Stanford University. They had created their guide as an overview over other websites, but they wanted Yahoo, the company, to become a portal so that you would go there and find out whatever it was you wanted to know. Yahoo Weather, Yahoo Stocks, Yahoo Mail, Yahoo This. Yahoo, that, etc. The problem Yahoo ran into is that you cannot have human bodies handle exponential growth. Exponential growth often gets misused to mean something that grows very fast. But it is not what it actually means. Instead, it means something that doubles at a fixed interval. And that means we can say meaningful things about what happens when it grows. If you're dealing with real exponential growth, the pattern will always be the same. You see or hear about it somewhere else. Then you start to see it around you, but it looks totally manageable and not a big deal. Then you begin to see a worrying amount, but you can still manage it and it's not too bad. All it is a little bit of work. And then you get totally, absolutely destroyed. There's no point where you have trouble managing it or are nearly getting destroyed. And you never, ever get a chance to catch back up. For each doubling period, you will do more work than all the work you have done so far. I would like to use the metaphor of a steamroller or Titanic and the iceberg. But honestly, neither do them justice. Maybe more like the Boston Molasses flood of January 15, 1919, when twelve thousand tons of molasses rushed through the streets of Boston, ultimately killing twenty-one people and injuring a hundred and fifty. No matter what you do, exponential growth is simply relentless and will not give up that is what exponential growth means or think about having to step over something that is one centimeter not the biggest deal right that's less than half an inch less than you would typically walk everything is fine double that to two and again you won't notice Four is just a little bit harder, because you have to place your foot a little weirdly this time. Eight might mean you have to step a little bit higher than you usually would. Sixteen, definitely. Thirty-two or just over a foot is somewhat harder to step over. And sixty-four or just over two feet is really annoying, but doable. Four feet? Well, that's a wall you can climb. 8 feet is one you cannot. But with exponential growth, it would take the same time to get from 1 to 4 centimeters as from 2 feet to 8 feet. It has been estimated that by late 1992, there were a total of 10 websites. By 1994, there were 3,000. If you are procrastinating during your PhD, and you can usually maintain such an index, since it's less than 10 new websites per day. By 1995, there were over 23,000 websites. That is still doable, but now we are talking full time or close to it. By 1996, there were just over a quarter million. You could hire an entire room of people to deal with that, but it won't help. Because by 1997, they're over 1.1 million, and the Internet doesn't stop growing. You can keep up as two guys in a shared office. And no matter how big the office is, you cannot hope to keep up for long. If you cannot keep up for long, what can you do? Can you have the people who make the websites tell you what they're about? In some automated fashion that a computer program could download? Well, it's easy enough to get their view of what is on their website, but then you smash your head into two more issues. Have you ever dealt with a report underscore draft underscore final begin parenthesis two close parenthesis underscore Monday underscore diary? then you know how well that works for regular people. That is, mostly not at all. But you're also not just asked to, say, find some website with guides about the best way to tour the San Francisco Zoo. You're tasked with getting a list of the top five or so guides. And if you just ask people how good their website is, you'll get two answers. Do no man, I was just messing around. Isn't the web neat? Look, I got a comment last week from a guy in Japan. Can you believe that? The other answer would be, My website is fantastic. You should totally check it out. And the actual quality of the website? That has nothing at all to do with which answer you get. Of course, there is one more problem. Nothing stops people from including some um, additional terms in their description that have nothing to do with the site. This podcast is somewhat family-friendly, so I won't list the search terms, but you can probably put any random body part together with the word teen and get something a lot more people will search for than the guides to zoos in San Francisco. Yes, most of them will be annoyed when they see your website doesn't have what they want, but think of your view counter going up, man. And some will go, oh, shiny new thing, and read your website anyway. Do that for five minutes, and the web is entirely overrun with spammers. Still, computers are fast and have no feelings, so they are perfect for the task, right? Well, yes, sort of. Now, you only have to define, to a computer, what a good result is for any given search. You may say that it is the one that gives the result the searcher wants, a publisher would say that a good search result is a result that returns something they have published, and a spammer would make sure you went to their website, no matter how they have to lie and cheat. trick your software into going there. Anyway, if we are trying to get a computer to do it for us, we need to define what the result the searcher wants is. Different web search engines attempt to do this in different ways. Some early search engines would do things like download websites from the internet, search through them for text, and then return them as a result if they had lots of the same text that was searched for. That's Maybe not the worst thing you could do, but I hope it's pretty clear how you could game that system so your web page was ranked high. You need to know that a given website is about and how relevant it is to a given search, but you can't trust the webmaster because he has every incentive to lie and cheat. You can go through this all yourself or hire neutral people to evaluate websites because the amount of data is growing at unbelievable rates. What can you do? Two PhD students from Stanford University thought they had an answer. Essentially an election among the websites as to which one was best for any given topic. The two guys, Larry Pates and Sergey Brien, had realized, probably while procrastinating on their studies, that the web formed well, a web of links, and that good websites would get more inbound links. That's other links that link to your website. But, super important too, there is no way directly for a webmaster to create links to his site from another website. This meant that you could use links as a form of votes. The more votes, links, a site would have, the higher it would rank. Of course there is a big issue with this idea. As I listen of this podcast, you're not only unique, fast, good looking, and gifted with fantastic humour, but are also able to spot holes in plans from a mile away. What is to stop somebody from creating a large number of websites that do nothing but link to your page? Fundamentally nothing. Any open system and the web back then was very open runs into this problem. Page and Brin, therefore, made one additional rule. The value of an inbound link depended on the rank of the website the link came from and how many links that website had going out. That is the core of the algorithm behind Google. That is what makes it much harder to cheat than any of the other methods. That is what made Page and Brin multi- billionaires. Let's explore the solution a bit. If you create a bunch of websites just to make your site rank better, that won't help you much since those websites won't rank very well by themselves. If, on the other hand, you get a single link from a high-ranking website, that will do much to push your website up. And of course, any links you now have that go out will have more of an effect too. The idea here is that if you have a website about politics, chances are you would write about President Bill Clinton. Remember, this is the 90s. You will then link to a high-quality website about him, probably whitehouse.gov. Your individual website might not add that much, but there is a lot of web space dedicated to politics, and these all will mostly link to whitehouse.gov. Many little websites put together mean that whitehouse.gov gets ranked really high the relevant search terms. Without having to do any work themselves, Google will therefore identify WhiteHouse.gov as a website that it should return at the top when people search for terms that it has. Wait, you say, if rank comes from websites with high rank linking to you, what makes those websites rank so highly in the first place? Isn't this a chicken and egg problem? Yes, the solution is the same the answer is gradually and over time in very small steps in the case of the chicken and the egg millions of years somewhat faster for google i would love to say that there is some genius solution but it is actually boringly simple after having indexed all the websites you assign every site at the same score and then you run the index on this since the authoritative sites will get more inbound links, they'll stand out. Then you take these values and run the index on them again, which will give you a better approximation. Then you do that again and again and again, until you get something that is good enough. Brin and Page actually did publish a relatively detailed description of how their early Google system worked, back when they were still students at Stanford, in a paper titled the anatomy of a large-scale, hypertextual web search engine. Among other things, they mentioned that you can actually try this thing they have created by going to google.stanford.edu. Apparently, Google was not so important back then that it warranted its own domain name. Google is not going to let me, or anyone else, know how often they do this today, However, I found some old numbers from Brin and Page's paper that said you usually get something useful around the 57th time through the cycle. I recommend you read the paper, by the way. It has such nostalgic gems as, We have created maps containing as many as 518 million of these hyperlinks. A significant sample of the total. Today, Wikipedia has over six million articles written in English, which means that Wikipedia alone probably has as many links today as Google had then. Exponential growth will not be trifled with. Well. What does Google do then after they have assigned a rank to all the websites? Well they pretty much just do what didn't work before. They will search through the websites and return the highest ranked result containing the word. Or words you have used. It is not just magic. It's better than magic. In the Harry Potter books, the protagonists often spent months looking up a few pieces of information, like what the secret chamber is, who Nicholas Famil is, and how to survive underwater. With Google, it would take Hermione three minutes to get the results. Still, they have flying broomsticks, so maybe That balances things. Nothing lasts forever, and certainly not something as simple and straightforward as Google. For starters, the web today looks nothing like it did when Bill Clinton was president. The web didn't stop growing the number of pages, and it didn't stop growing in importance. Remember how I said there were 1.1 million websites back in 1997? Numbers today are all over the place. Anywhere from 1.2 billion to as many as 4 billion. That's at least a thousand times as many. Measure how much the web grew is nothing compared to the change in influence of the web. Around the turn of the millennium, I read an article about a man who wanted to spend the next year without leaving his home, working over the internet, and having everything delivered. In 2012, articles were written about Paul Miller, a writer for the magazine The Verge, who wanted to leave the internet for a year, and that was a big deal. And of course, a large part of the population had to work from home and all the most, if not everything, online during the pandemic. The web had gone 180 degrees, from it being noteworthy only to be online, to it being possible for a large share of the population to only be online. But the nature of the web also changed, because as Google had more and more success, people would start to do all sorts of things to get high-quality links they weren't doing before, with the specific aim of ranking highly on Google. Some of this is fine and actually helps the web. Sites coded in macromedia flash systems were replaced with websites that had text on them, so that Google would index the text. In addition, headers and text would be changed, so they use the actual words people would search for. Both things obviously made Google's job easier, but it also made the web more valuable. So Google's advice to rank well has always been to do this, write the best content you can, and then let them worry about ranking your website. Of course, people figured out that if they could make other websites linked to them, it would mean they would rank higher google calls this paid links and say they penalize websites owners to do this but obviously that is harder to do than to say and if you are too good at detecting it what is to stop me from buying links to your website so that you get penalized then there are the content farms websites whose aim is to have an article or a video to reply to every question that somebody might have. The articles were always written to be as quick and cheap as possible, since they only had two goals. Get you there, and serve you ads. You will notice, answering your question is not on that list. Then there are websites claiming to have any upcoming movie or TV series release date. When you click on the article, it will be filled with fluff about it, movie or TV series, and then it will have speculation on the release date. That is because they don't know the release date because that date hasn't been released by the producers. Unfortunately, the site still needs to go there and load the information-free article so that, you guessed it, they can show you ads beside it. Finally, there are websites set up to answer simple math questions like what is 23 over 2 simplified? It's pretty easy to write a computer program that calculates the response for every possible choice and then ensures that a new article is generated as needed for any combination of numbers. Then you have some very cheap content to serve the ads against. Google, to no one's great surprise, has released several updates against this, and so the cycle continues. But the basic idea is still the same once you have accounted for the attempt to play the system. Today, Google is a multi tens of billion-dollar, gigantic corporation, and the founders are beyond Grits. Yahoo ended up selling for a few billion dollars, except Yahoo Japan, which is another story for another time, to Verizon. But it didn't have to be that way. In 1998, Page and Brin wanted to sell Google so they could return to their studies. One of the places they wanted to sell the company to was Yahoo, but Yahoo turned them down. The price they asked for? q Austin Powers' fat bastard. One million dollars. Yahoo turned them down because why would they buy a company that sent their visitors to other websites? They didn't want visitors to leave Yahoo, but to stay there so Yahoo could... You guessed it, serve more ads. The rest, as they say, is history. With an epilogue. Yahoo would eventually go on to realize the importance of search and buy a search company you have never heard of called Toma. Then they would invest in an obscure Chinese internet startup called Alibaba. How much they earned on that Alibaba deal exactly is difficult to find, but the shares they owned ended up being worth more than the rest of Yahoo when you exclude Yahoo Japan. Which is, yes, a story for another time. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please write to me at feedback at techwithtommy.com, that is feedback at techwatomi.com and I will see you in the next episode. Until then, stay curious.